Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Behind every great song is a great writer. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth interviews with the accomplished and influential writers and composers behind some of those great songs, from the well-known to the ones you should know. On each episode, we feature a different writer sharing his or her insights into the creative process, their approach to the craft, and the stories behind the songs, from the hits to some of the lesser-known deep cuts. Whether you're a songwriter, a music lover, or just a fan of pop culture, be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes so you don't miss out on a single episode. We'd love to hear from you, so let us know what you think by sharing your thoughts at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to People Are Crazy, a number one hit for Billy Currington in 2009, which was written by our guest on this edition of Songcraft, Bobby Braddock. Bobby has written more than a dozen number one country hits, including standards such as Tammy Wynette's D-I-V-O-R-C-E and George Jones's He Stopped Loving Her Today, which is frequently ranked as the greatest country song of all time. Jones began finding success with Braddock's songs in the 1970s with hits such as Nothing Ever Hurt Me, Half As Bad As Losing You, and Her Name Is. He and his then-wife, Tammy Wynette, scored with Bobby's We're Not the Jet Set and Golden Ring, while Tammy found solo success with Womanhood and They Call It Making Love. Other Braddock penned hits from the 1970s include I Believe the South is Gonna Rise Again, which Tanya Tucker took to the top 20, Something to Brag About, which Mary Kay Place and Willie Nelson took to the top 10, and Come On In, which was a hit for Jerry Lee Lewis in 1978. Bobby continued to reach the number one position in the 1980s with I Feel Like Loving You Again and Faking Love by T.G. Shepard, the 1990s with Texas Tornado and Time Marches On by Tracy Lawrence, and the 2000s with I Want to Talk About Me by Toby Keith and the aforementioned People Are Crazy by Billy Currington. He earned the Country Music Association's Song of the Year Award in both 1980 and 1981. He was, at the time, the youngest person inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1981, and he was honored with the BMI Icon Award in 2011. Additionally, he discovered Blake Shelton and produced or co-produced Shelton's first five albums. Braddock was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2011 and was just inducted into the National Songwriters Hall of Fame. He is the only living person to have written number one country songs in five consecutive decades. His second memoir, entitled Bobby Braddock, A Life on Nashville's Music Row, will be released this fall. Bobby, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, well, it's our pleasure to have you. And uh, you grew up in Central Florida in the 40s and 50s, and you wrote about that a lot in your 2007 memoir, Down in Orbandale, A Songwriter's Youth in Old Florida. But for those who haven't read your book yet, um, can you give us an idea of what that environment was like at the time? Well, it was, it was a, a rural, small-town atmosphere, and that part of Florida, especially then, was um, it was very Southern culture. Most of the kids I went to school with, I mean, they were born in Florida or Georgia or Alabama. There were so many people in my hometown that came from, from a little county in southeast Alabama, around Dothan, Alabama, that there was a saying that if somebody from Auburndale dies, they don't go to heaven, they go to Cottonwood. <laughs> <laughs> And it was, it was, I guess, maybe kind of a Huck Finn sort of childhood, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of, of just growing up in the South, in, in 1987, Johnny Cash recorded one of your songs, The Night Hank Williams Came to Town. But I have the original demo of that song, which you initially wrote as The Night Porter Wagner Came to Town. Right. And, and the lyrics capture that small town Southern life so perfectly, especially the, the final verse. Ain't this a hatter picture made for Porter by the bus? She said he was down to earth, just like one of us. Then Mavis said, why don't we hang around 
It ain't often Porter Wagner comes to town Porter signed his autograph on Bueller Reisner's band Then maybe has got acquainted with the Wagon Master Band The effect on all our lives was quite profound The night that Porter Wagner came And I, I don't feel like someone could have written that scene so authentically had they not been raised in the South. Uh, so how did your growing up years shape you as a songwriter? I don't know how keen an observer I am, but I try to observe other people in their lives. And often I think about that when I write a song from my experience or experience that other people have had. Now, that particular song, I had a co-writer, his name was Charlie Williams. He was a DJ and, yeah. and, and, and a publisher, and he knew this small-town Southern life, too. And it was his concept. You know, he said, some star coming to town. I think he had it the night Ernest Tubb came to town. I, huh. I, why don't we make it Porter Wagner? Yeah. And and so what kind of music were you absorbing as a kid? Was it off the radio or were you hearing music from other places? What what were you listening to? Uh, mostly off the radio. Uh, where I came from, I mean, the, I know the kids in school, some of them were like what we call popular music. And, and there was what we called hillbilly music, which was, of right. course was, was country music. And... Some like one kind, some like the other. My brother and his friends, they love country music, and I didn't really like it. Huh. Uh, what I liked, I liked the pop stuff. I like gospel quartets. I love that. Wow. And, and I love jazz and Dixieland jazz and Louis Armstrong. And by the time I was in junior high school, I was fortunate enough to be around and to witness the birth of rock and roll. Right. And I remember watching a local dance show of the TV station out of Orlando. Yeah. And the DJ was saying, we had this guy here that's causing a lot of controversy. Some people say he's pop and some say he's hillbilly. Tell us what you think. And played Elvis's Mystery Train. Uh, and man, yeah. I had a fit. I fell in love with that. Yeah. I, I'd heard some of Elvis's stuff. Right. And, and I became a big fan and also a fan of uh, Johnny Cash, which I thought was the same kind of music sure. that Elvis was because it... It came out of Memphis on the Sun label and had that slapback echo sound to right, it. Yeah. And so I started liking Elvis and Johnny Cash, and I realized I was listening to some kind of country music, you know. Right. And I started loving it. And then I started listening to Marty Robbins, Ray Price, and then I started listening to the Hank Williams and Carl Smith that my brother and his friends had liked. Yeah. And, and, and I really, truly fell in love with country music. Right. I was loving country music about as much as I was rock and roll. I'd say, I'd say more. Yeah. So Elvis and Johnny Cash were your gateway drug. They were. <laughs> they, yeah. they absolutely were. Well, I know that you started playing piano as a kid, and, and you were playing in in various bands and things uh, as you were growing up, as you were a teenager and a young adult. And I understand that you landed a gig playing piano with a now-obscure DECA recording duo known as Chuck and Betty, who were responsible for bringing you to Nashville for the first time. Tell us about that trip and what kind of impression Nashville made on you. You get an A in obscure research, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I went to Atlanta to uh, radio announcing school, and it's called the Atlanta School of Electronics. Yeah. And I had a part-time job in, in DECA Distributors in, in Atlanta. They distributed the, uh, records to record stores throughout the Southeast. Right. And this little short, pudgy guy came in there, and his name was Chuck Taylor. Huh. And he said, man, I'm with a duet called Chuck and Betty. 
Right. And uh, uh, and I, I I was familiar with the name because I had you know working in the distributorship there. Right. I'd seen the Chuck and Betty records. They were rockabilly. Yeah. And uh, told me he was looking for a band, and I had a little band I had formed there, and it's a little rock and roll band. And he uh, said he wanted us auditionists, and so we became his band. Though we made no money. Right. So but, they took you. They took you up to Nashville then. I went with him to Nashville a couple of times to sessions. His producer was Owen Bradley. That was a thrill for me to get to sit on the recording sessions. Uh, one with Owen Bradley and another one with a guy who had been a big star like in the early 50s when he was quite young, when he was like 19, 20, 21 years old. That was uh, Lester Frizzell. Oh, sure. So I got Legend. to be in the session and see some of my heroes as Nashville session players. And Carol Bradley ushered us in, got us seats and we sat out there in the studio where they were recording that would never happen oh, out on the floor well wow. <laughs> yeah you must have felt like you died and gone to music heaven in that moment. i did wow. i did i was thrilled to death and so then in 1964 you officially moved to nashville and was that uh did, did you want to become a professional songwriter was that your goal or, or what what brought you to move there i think if i want to try to find out something about me i'm just going to ask you <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly when september 1964 came to nashville and i'm just sort of in awe of you asking that question, even right now, what was the question? <laughs> uh, well, it was uh, w when you did move to Nashville. Um, was your goal to become a professional songwriter? That was my heart of hearts goal, but I had confidence in myself as a piano player, hmm. and I thought I could get a job as a piano player. I hoped I could make it as a songwriter. Wow. And and so what? When you first got there, were you getting jobs playing piano? Or what, what did you start doing? Uh, I knew almost no one in Nashville. We had a rock and roll band in Florida. It was actually pretty good. It was now they would call it a cover band. The guy who ran the band had a, a friend that he had toured with, and he was sort of a local rockabilly star in Tampa, and his name was Benny Joy. And he was in Nashville, and he had become a country songwriter, was having having some success at it. So he. He was sort of my contact there. Yeah. We got a little band together, and we played a dive sort of in a rural area just northeast of Nashville. Yeah. And uh, weren't making much money, but at least, you know, I was I was playing around there. And then eventually, I mean, early the next year, within a few months after I came to town, I got a job playing piano with uh, Marty Robbins, which was... Yeah, I know, I know Marty had a, really had a lot to do with your breaking into the, into the Nashville music scene. Talk about how you first connected with him. Well, there's a guy who played drums in the band who I was playing with uh, uh, in the dive. He had toured on the road with Roger Miller and, mm -hmm. and a couple of other people. And he called me one day after I'd, after I'd been playing on the road with Marty for about maybe a year and three months. So this would have been probably around January or February of 65 that, yeah. that, that this drummer called me and said, hey, man, do you want a job that could last forever? <laughs> I said, what's that? And he said, well, Marty Robbins, piano player, Joe Babcock, is, wants to quit the road. And so I called Joe and set up a, an audition for Marty. And Joe told me the two songs I really needed to learn the intros for. Marty had a couple songs that he had a piano intro on. I learned those. And and I went to audition. And I got the job, and I played on the road with him from February 65 to, I guess it was probably September of the 66. Wow. And did, did you have a chance to actually write for Marty or present any songs to him during the time? I did, indeed. He recorded two of my songs. One of them wasn't a big hit. It got in the top 20. It was called While You're Dancing. Hmm. And uh, there's another song called Matilda. Matilda Mustn't let Will see you cry 
covered wagons keep on rolling Never question or ask why Matilda Work your fingers to the bone Read your Bible pray Now Matilda was the was the first song that that you ever had cut is that right That's the first major cut I ever had yeah 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 and that was kind of in that western flavor that that Marty was doing It was he was wanting a western song so I specifically sat down and wrote the song for him, man. He had one of his band guys call me and asked me to come down to the studio where they had just recorded it, and, and he played it for me. And man, it's just—I thought it's the most wonderful thing I'd ever heard in my life. You know? uh, yeah. <laughs> it, was my, yeah. it was my first first cut. Yeah, amazing. Well, and then in in December of 1965, you experienced your first Billboard charting hit when, uh, while you were dancing, went. I think it peaked at number 21 in Billboard in, in December of 65. Um, and so here you are, you, you've moved to Nashville relatively quickly. You're, you're working with Marty Robbins. You've had this, now you've got a, a song in the top 20 on some of the charts. And do you remember hearing while you're dancing on the radio for the first time? I remember I was on my way down to the Nashville library. I love to read a lot and I love libraries and I was on the way down there and, and, and that came on the radio and I just remember how excited I was to hear it. While you're dancing I'll just keep on sitting at this table While they're laughing at me I try to take it just as long as I'm able While you're wandering across the floor I keep wondering deep inside if I'd have walked out long ago How much less would I have cried Oh, how many times have I cried While you're dancing And it was a... I think of myself as being pretty original. Why I, I ripped off a melody, I don't know. But that that melody is a ripoff of a song called Save the Last Dance for Me. By <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Doc Palmas' song. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if, if While You're Dancing had been a big hit, I probably would have been sued on it. Well, <laughs> don't worry. The only people that will know are the people that listen to this interview. So, <laughs> um, Well, in 1966, uh, you signed with Tree Music Publishing, and that company is now owned by Sony ATV. But you're still there, and you've been with them all this time. I'd love to know how you first got that deal and a little bit what it was like, the environment there when you first started out there and how it compares to the to the scene of that company today. And this is a big difference in then and now. That was then Tree Publishing Company. It had just become the biggest company in town. It still wasn't the giant that, that it was eventually become. As was the case with most publishers in town in, in those days, it was independently, locally owned, owned by a man named Jack Stapp. And 30% owner was the vice president of the company, and he was really the guy who took it out of a little cubbyhole office into a, a real major publishing company. His name was Buddy Killen. Sure. And I thought that would be a good place to go. I knew, and I knew that their star writer Roger Miller had just moved to the coast, and I thought, you know, that might be a good place for a, for a new young writer to go. Oh. And and I called there, and I, amazingly, I got Buddy Killen on the phone. And he had heard While You're Dancing on the radio, and he was, I think, maybe a little bit impressed, you know, that I had a song that sounded like a hit. It, 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 it did sound like a hit. It, it sounded like Save the Last Dance for Me. <laughs> <laughs> so he had me come down there, and I played him some songs, and he thought my songs were just very, very unusual, and he signed me. Wow. Yeah. And I started getting songs recorded right away. I thought, 
wow, it's going to be this way the rest of my life, which it wasn't, you know, but, but <laughs> I was off to a, a grandiose start. Yeah. Well, your your first top 10 single was Little Jimmy Dickens' Country Music Lover, yeah. uh, which hit the top 10 in Cashbox Magazine in 1967. The trouble all started with them phonograph records I bought her. Like she thought Kitty Wells was a place a cat goes to get water. Really thought that I had learned to love her. I even took her home to meet my mother. That's why it breaks my heart to discover that she ain't a country music lover. In that same year, uh, you scored your first top ten in Billboard with the Statler Brothers recording of Ruthless. But now I'm as ruthless as can be. And these songs are funny and they're kind of off the wall, but they're also both of the songs are about losing a relationship. And when I look at your catalog, there are songs that are heartbreaking and there are songs that are novelty songs, but sometimes they seem to straddle both worlds. And I'm wondering how your view, I know that you're an avid reader and you're a literary guy, but how does your view of tragedy and comedy inform your perspective as a songwriter? Well, you know, it, it, the irony of it all is, is that a lot of times in my career, not so much now because uh, uh, I think country music has lost its sense of humor. Hmm. Back in those days, I would write a song that I would think of as being funny and, and other people would think it was serious. Yeah. And and vice versa. I would huh. think of it as serious and other people would think it was funny. I think that, that in terms of the the more kind of off the wall and the, the kind of funny stuff that you were writing, you know, one of the most out there titles is probably the Statler Brothers nineteen sixty seven hit, You Can't Have Your Kate and Edith Too. And up to that point you had written hits for Marty Robbins, Little Jimmy Dickens, the Statler Brothers, and Ferlin Husky by yourself. Uh, but this song was the first real hit that you co-wrote with Curly Putman. Um, tell us a little bit about your, your partnership with Curly and what influence he had on your writing. So Cur- Curly was the, he was the sole country song plugger at Tree. Oh, really? And what was ironic was that Curly was also a songwriter who was getting a pretty good track record himself. He had the Green, Green Grass of Home, which yeah, yeah. was when I went there. It had already been a hit by Porter Wagoners before it was an international hit by Tom Jones. Right. But he had a great deal of objectivity in pitching songs. He was uh, just as apt to play one of my songs or, or one of Don Wayne's songs or Red Lane's songs as, as he was his own. Yeah. And he was very objective about it. Interesting. And, I don't know, my my writing is so weird and off the wall. I wouldn't say I had a mentor. If I had one, it would have been been Curly. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he certainly mentored me in pitching songs and trying to gear myself towards uh, uh, what the market was doing at the time and sure. street sense and all that. And uh, Curly, you know, became a lifelong friend. So I, I learned a lot from him. Yeah, learned, and he got a lot of my songs. Buddy Kellen got a lot of my songs recorded. So did Curly Putman. Mm-hmm. Curly got yeah. a lot of them cut. Now, Curly is, of course, listed as a writer on your first number one single, which was Tammy Wynette's D-I-V-O-R-C-E, which hit the top of the charts in the summer of 1968. Our D-I-V-O-R-C-E becomes final today. Me and little 
What can you tell us about how that song came together and just the experience of making it to number one for the first time? I had this song. It's a song I had written by myself and we demoed it and nobody was recording it. Hmm. And I couldn't understand it, you know, because it's, I mean, I look at it, I look back on it now as being, being pretty corny, but uh, uh, corny in a clever sort of way or clever in a corny sort of way. <laughs> right. And at that time, I just thought, you know, I thought it was something that was maybe pretty commercial, and I was surprised nobody had recorded it. And Corey said, you know, he said, I think the problem is, when you get around that title line, he said, it's a sad song, but it's got this happy melody. And that was true. It sounded kind of like a soap commercial. <laughs> the way I had it written was, it was pretty much the way you would hear it now, but there's the title line, and, and that same line comes around, the same melody comes around in, in the last line of the verse. And the way I had it was, Oh, I wish that we could stop this D-I-V-O-R-C-E. And I said, Well, what would you do? And he picked up a guitar, and, he, and Curly had this real mournful kind of singing. He's a great singer. Yeah. He's a lonely-looking guy, and he has this lonesome-sounding vocal style. And he yeah. said, Oh, I wish that we could stop this D-I-V-O-R-C-E. I said, let's get it on tape like that. I said, I love that. Yeah. So he sat down, he got a guitar, and I played the piano, and I did the little thing that you'd hear on the Tammy Annette record. Boom, 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 boom. And Curly sang it. Yeah. Took it over to Billy Sherrill. He cut it within a couple of weeks on Tammy. Wow. And, and, and Curly said, oh, I don't want any of this song. He said, I didn't do that much. And I said, well, you made a big difference. And well, he... He made it such a big difference, it was a difference between get, getting recorded and not recorded. Yeah. Isn't that amazing how just, you know, changing a word or a slight melody here or there can take a song from being a song that nobody's going to cut to a number one that everybody in the world knows? <laughs> yeah, it brought it to life. And, and, and to that, today, I think, you know, I mean, probably would have just said, you know, split the song. And Curly said, I don't want it. And I said, well, you, you should, we should split. So he... He agreed to take 25% of it. Yeah. Well, you, you enjoyed a handful of charting singles uh, in the late 60s and into the early 70s by our artists like Autry Inman, Jack Reno, Tex Ritter, Nat Stuckey, uh, the duet team of Charlie Leuven and Melba Montgomery. But one of your songs from the early 70s that was not really uh, a big hit was Bleep You by Cal Smith. Bleep you, old woman. Bleep you, old woman. I'm I'm surprised the label released it because I think of Nashville as still being pretty conservative in that era. It um, was. Do, do you think of yourself as someone who who wanted to push the envelope in terms of what country music was willing to to joke about or or address? Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> in the course of that song, uh, bleep bleep for me was that was the euphemism for every cuss word imaginable. Right. Uh, it bless her heart. I thought. I had a second wife, I mean, who was a girlfriend and a wife that I was I was just so madly in love with her that she inspired a lot of songs. <laughs> that that may be the, 
the only song my first wife inspired <laughs> <laughs> was that one. <laughs> and, and, and it's it was funny, and and, and there's uh, uh, I think it's a G-rated way I can tell this. My daughter who was maybe I don't know she was probably seven years old at the time. We were riding down the road, and that came on radio, and, and she said, "Daddy, there's your song," and she started singing it. You know, <laughs> I thought I said. Do you have any idea what that means? And uh, uh, I'll say bleep. I'll <laughs> yeah. say bleep now instead of what. And she says, bleepy old woman. And <laughs> she said the real word. I tell you, if I had false teeth, they would have fallen out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, so in 1973, George Jones hit number seven on the Billboard chart with your song, Nothing Ever Hurt Me Half As Bad As Losing You. And he and Tammy Wynette were married at the time, and then they went on to have a hit as a duo with another Bobby Braddock song, We're Not the Jet Set. So tell us a little bit about your relationship with George and Tammy and their producer, Billy Sherrill. Billy Sherrill was, I think he was a genius. He, I, he was certainly the foremost producer of, of his era, yeah, which sure. I think was from the 60s on up to the early 80s. And Billy was a very introverted, reclusive man. He didn't. He was not very comfortable around a lot of people. Right. I'm a little bit that way, but but Billy was, I mean, he was almost like a hermit. Sometimes I almost felt like Billy didn't like people, you know. <laughs> he didn't, he didn't like to be around people. There were not many people he led into his inner sanctum, and fortunately I was one of those. And I mean, to say that he helped my career would be an understatement. I mean, he just, I'd say a good 30, 40% of my hits that I had in the, that, during that period were Billy Sherrill produced them. Yeah. I don't know what I would have done with, without him. I mean, he was... In his Don Rickles sort of way, he was always he was always very good to me. Well, and and all the success you know that you experienced with uh, George and Tammy, both as solo artists and as uh, a duet. Uh, of course, a lot of that had to do with with Billy and um, you know those great records that he made with with your songs. And your second number one single in Billboard was a, another George and Tammy duet, "Golden Ring" from 1976. Golden Ring. With one tiny little stone waiting there For someone to take it home by itself It's just a cold metallic thing Only love can make a golden wedding ring And the song, of course, opens with this couple buying these wedding rings from a pawn shop, but then their love fades and that same ring winds up back at the pawn shop where another young couple is is looking at it as the as the song ends and to me it's a masterful story of relationships that uh, is told in this unique way by using an object rather than a person as the central character and it's it's probably one of my favorite uh, Bobby Braddock songs thank you it's one of one of my favorites too golden ring that idea came from I was watching the TV show and it was a made for TV movie and it was about the life of a handgun huh and uh, uh, different people who owned it, and then I think a policeman had it, and, and it was stolen, and, and this uh, bad guy got a hold of the gun, and it ended up back in the pawn shop, and, and somebody bought it. And in the last scene, it showed the little two- or three-year-old boy finding it and looking at it, and that it ended there. Wow. Huh, and, wow. and I thought it was a powerful piece, and I thought, what about writing a song about the life of a wedding band no. instead of a gun? Yeah. And so that's where that came from. Interesting. And I had it started, and I didn't have a lot left to do, but I just hit, hit a snag, and I wasn't able to finish it. I needed 
to have somebody there with me co-running it. Yeah. And I called Curly Putman, and he wanted to stay on his farm that day. And yeah. I looked, and this young friend of mine, uh, uh, Rafe Van Hoy, came into Tree, which is now Sony. Right. I said, what are you doing? I, he said, nothing really. I said, you want to write this song with me? So I uh, went in there and, and finished that, and his mother worked at the jewelry store, and we called her to, I don't know if any information we got for her went into the song, but I remember us doing that. Yeah. And that was the quickest song I ever had anything to do with, from the pen until it being played on the radio. It was amazing how that would never happen today. How fast? Uh, we wrote it, and this was like the late Friday afternoon we written this song, and I think within a week, week and a half, uh, George and Tammy cut it, and within two or three weeks, it was playing on the radio. Oh, wow. wow. From the time we wrote it, it was it was in rotation within a month. Amazing. <laughs> well, I want to talk about another one of your mid-1970s hits, I Believe the South is Going to Rise Again. And uh, Tanya Tucker had a top 20 single with that song, and it takes kind of a, a potentially troublesome phrase, and it turns it on its head, calling for a new era of economic equality and racial harmony. But I believe the South is gone. before about being somebody who wanted to kind of push the envelope at times of what Nashville wanted to talk about. Did you ever consider yourself a political writer? I just considered myself a writer, and sometimes my opinions would get into songs. I mean, it's just, Nashville is so far from that now. I mean, mm. people don't want people to put political opinions in songs, and, right. and, and they're just very, very careful about it. But but back then, I, there weren't as many rules. Mm. Yeah. There weren't as many rules, and, and there weren't as many followers. I mean, there were more leaders, I think. Yeah. And, and coming from a very southern small town, I mean, I had just old-fashioned, I mean, I grew up, you know, in an era of segregation, and I and I never thought anything was wrong with it because I thought, you know, that was the way it was supposed to be because that was the only way I had known. Right. As I grew older, I mean, I think my ideas on that, you know, certainly became a lot more progressive, and I wanted to write a song about what I felt was the New South. Yeah. And quite a few people cut that. Bobby Goldsboro and Tanya Tucker both charted with it. Wow. Yeah. And something we've talked about on this show before is that country music is actually the only form of media that we can think of that has gotten more conservative. Uh, as you say, in the 70s, people kind of did take risks more in country music. And I can't think of really any other genre or, or you know, television or, or movies or, or any other type of music where things have gotten more conservative uh, except in, in country. And I, I am beginning to see a change in that um, now that I do think some new things are starting to be written about. But for a long time, the, the curve seemed to be headed, you know, backwards, so to speak, in terms of what country music would, would address. Yeah, at one time, country music was wide open. I mean, there could be a more conservative point of view, and I know there were a lot of songs like during the Vietnam War. And back then, when I was pretty conservative myself, uh, Curly Putman and Buddy Killen and I were involved in the most pro Vietnam War song ever written. And politics aside, maybe one of the worst songs ever written. <laughs> that, was, that was called The Ballad of Two Brothers. Yeah. It was an abomination. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but back then, you could have liberal songs, you could have conservative songs, all within the realm of country music. I mean, right. the, there were people like Johnny Cash and Tom T. Hall. They had song, 
I don't know if I would use the word liberal, but I would say on the side of, of, of the little guy. Mm, right. On the side of the poor people, maybe on the more progressive side. Tom T. Hall had a thing called, I wash my face in the morning dew. Yeah. It was about a lynching. It was about a black man being hung. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, and you're not going to hear that now. No. You know? Right. Country music went through a phase for a few years, a few years, that there were a lot of very conservative songs. Now they're not even those. I mean... I'd like to hear a point of view song, whether right. it's left or right. You don't hear point of view songs. I right. mean, you know, you, there's a lot of songs about partying and dancing, and that's, I mean, some of them are good. Yeah. Uh, there was one that I just loved, and that was Dirt Road Anthem. I thought that yeah. was a masterpiece. Right. I mean, so you can take any kind of music, I mean, you know, you can do it good or you can do it bad, and I think there's right. a lot of country music out there that I think is, I think it's atrocious. There's a lot of it. I think it's great. Yeah, sure. It's a mixed bag. Well, by the late 1970s, you were one of the hottest writers in Nashville. Uh, you had another number one with Johnny Duncan's recording of Thinking of a Rendezvous, which you wrote with Sonny Throckmorton. Um, but you also had a, a big pile of singles in that era that you wrote by yourself. Um, I'm thinking of Bill Anderson's Peanuts and Diamonds, Jerry Lee Lewis's Come On In, Johnny Paycheck's Georgia in a Jug. Uh, you had a couple more Tammy Wynette hits like Womanhood and they call it Making Love. Um, these days, so few writers in Nashville write alone, um, but you've really done it both ways. And I'm wondering for you, what are some of the pros and cons of collaborating versus writing solo? I mean, when you collaborate, I mean, you got two minds going there, but, you know, but then again, if you have, now they have, I mean, sometimes five and six writers. Yeah. Uh, to me, I'd say, I think identity loss, you know? <laughs> right. If I were on a song with that many writers, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if I'd feel like I had done much writing. I don't know. Yeah. But there's some writers who get together and write some really good songs, and, and there's a bunch of them contributing, and there's, there's a way they have of doing that. Red Lane wanted to put together a song one time uh, uh, and, and see how many writers he can get on it. This is way back in the, gee, I guess it was the 70s, maybe. Right. And there were, I think, 14 of us on there. Wow. <laughs> Just about Jeez. every writer at Tree Publishing Company got in on that. It was called In Love With Love, but that was... Three, that's the most I've ever gone, is three. And I don't mind that. I mean, they got some, some good songs out of it, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. But my co-writers typically with one more writer. Sure, yeah. Well, now I want to ask you about the song that you are probably most identified with, He Stopped Loving Her Today, which George Jones released in 1980. And that is such an iconic record. But I actually want to hear a little bit of your original demo. He kept her picture on the wall Went half crazy now and then But he still loved her through it all Hoping she'd come back again But he stopped loving her today they placed a wreath upon his door Tomorrow they'll carry him away He stopped loving her today So tell us how that song was written and how George wound up recording it. I don't know who your sources are. They're pretty dang good. <laughs> We're tied in with the FBI. <laughs> uh, he stopped loving her today. Curly Putman and I got together to write in the summer of 1977, and we got back together and finished the song. Thought it was finished. It was actually wasn't. And 
demoed it, and uh, it did get cut twice. Johnny Russell cut it twice. But then Billy Sherrill wanted to do it, and he wanted it to be a little bit longer and wanted a recitation. So Curly and I had originally written it with a recitation. We got that, and Billy didn't like that. We got three other versions. He finally got one that he liked. Hmm. And so it never actually got recorded until February of 1980. Hmm. Wow. And we started it in 77. The opposite of Golden Ring. Yeah. Yeah, the opposite, yeah, of yeah. Golden Ring. So Billy Sherrill believes to this day that he and George went in the studio and cut that, started cutting that in 1978, and it took him to 1980 to get it finished. And and he sincerely believes that, but <laughs> but that couldn't be, because we didn't write the recitation part until February of 1980, mm-hmm. long after we demoed it. Yeah. And Billy and George went in there and cut a few days after that. And for him to cut that version a year, year and a half before, he would have had to say, you know, let's just in case uh, Curly and Bobby write a recitation verse. Leave let's write, let's, leave let's record this long, this <laughs> long thing here, and don't put anything on it. We'll go back in in 1980. Right, right. <laughs> I try to tell him that, but he he won't listen to me. <laughs> He's got it in his mind. And I think what happened is I think they went in there, and at the end of the session, I think they said, well, "Let's try this." He stopped loving it today, and it did. It ended up not being written on the track box. Mm. Right, and I think that's what happened. And but when they actually recorded it, they recorded the version that Curly and I completed in, in February. Yeah, and George went in and cut it a week later, and then we went to his office and he played it for us. I guess it was in March. Yeah, after he had, after he had mixed it. Well, I've I've heard that you, when you finish writing a song, you tend to give it a rating on a scale of one to ten, sort of a, a an on the spot evaluation. Um, and, and you probably know what I gave this one. <laughs> I've I've uh, I've heard that you did not give "He Stopped Loving Her" today a, a ten. So well, what's up with that? <laughs> I gave it a seven. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was an okay song. Yeah. And until Billy Sherrill played it for us, and 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 I'd have to say that this is a case where the artist and the producer elevated it up two or three notches. Yeah. And made it made it a better song. Yeah, yeah. They're great songs and they're great records. And in this case, I think it's a marriage of the two, but uh, a great record can make a great song even greater. I mean, when I heard this thing, I thought, holy catfish. This, this, this <laughs> is something. I, in fact, I went in there wanting to hear a song that David Allen Coe recorded called uh, The Great Nashville Railroad Disaster. <laughs> but then he played, he stopped loving it today, and I knew then that it was something great. I, and to this day, I think it's the best country record ever made. Well, it would be a tie between that and Vince's uh, Go Rest Time the Mountain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think good song, great record. <laughs> he stopped loving her today. It placed a reef upon his door. And soon they'll carry him away. He stopped loving her today. Well, I mean, as far as that rating scale goes that you give your songs, I mean, so often, I mean, I know when I finish writing something, and Scott and I have talked about this before, nine times out of ten, I feel like I've just written the best song I've ever written. You know, I get done with it, and then I put down the pen or the laptop or whatever, and I know a lot of writers feel that way. How do you switch from that creative part of your brain to to then go and objectively evaluate your work like that so quickly? Uh, well, you're very smart because that is a different part of the brain, the part that creates. And that's why I like to wait two or three days before I really mm. 
evaluate a song because then you're listening to it like somebody else would listen to it. Right. You're, yeah. You are an audience uh, and, and not as much a, a, a participant. When right. you first write it, I don't think you have sound judgment on it. I mean, a good example of that I know, is, is a guy who told me that he would wake up in the night, you know, with these great titles and he wouldn't write it down and wake up the next day and he wouldn't couldn't remember it so he mm-hmm. got this pad of paper and put it next to his bed and he woke up and got this idea and he thought wow this is great and he wrote it down went back to sleep got up the next day couldn't wait to grab that pad to see this 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 masterpiece that he had come up with and what he had written down was i ate the window <laughs> 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 yeah, so sometimes you need a little a little distance to get the. <laughs> to get the <laughs> no, but but when when you've I hate to harp on this evaluation system for so long, but I'm super curious about it. it if you've given a song a six, let's say you you know three days after writing it, do you then go, oh, how do I crack that thing open and make it a ten, or do you just kind of go, okay, that's a six, on to the next one? I think I've become a little better at the art of rewriting because lately I've done. There's one song that I felt was really worth working on, and I stuck with it for a long time. I took it in my publisher. Of course, you, Scott, know this guy because he worked with your dad for a long time, Terry Wakefield. Oh, sure. And I think Terry is just a, a, a number one song man. I, I, he may be the only song plugger that I totally, completely listen to uh, I've yeah. ever worked with. I mean, uh, uh, and he said, man, this is a really good song except such and such and such and such. So I paid attention to him, and I went to back home to rewrite the song. And as it was, I rewrote about 80% of it. I did uh, a lot more than he asked me to. Yeah. And, 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 and I took it back, and he was really excited about the song. So that's something I didn't used to do a lot, mm. and, and I do a lot of rewriting now. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, wisdom to be learned there for the sure. importance of of, uh, of the craft and, and keeping working away at it. Um, I used to think that, if you didn't write a song fairly quickly, that it probably wasn't very good, which is just very, very wrong. <laughs> and why I changed my mind was one of my favorite songs was a, a song on a Judd recording called She Is His Only Need. Sure. And I was talking to Dave Loggins about that, and he said, man, he said it took me six months to write that song. Right. So there went my old theory that if you didn't write <laughs> right. it fast, it wasn't good. You were, you were open to changing your mind. Well, I understand that in, in the, or I know that in the early 80s, you, you had some big hits, uh, including John Anderson's uh, Would You Catch a Falling Star. You had a couple of number one records, courtesy of T.G. Shepard, which were I Feel Like Loving You Again and Faking Love. Uh, but then there weren't really any major hits for almost 10 years. And I'm wondering if you attribute that to changing musical tastes or, or changes in the industry or maybe just whatever was going on in, in your life at the time. And people ask me, you ever had a dry spell? I said, no, it, what I was writing was just not what the market wanted. I thought that huh. I thought I was writing as good as I ever had. And, yeah. and I look back on those songs and I still think that I was. It's just it wasn't what the market was wanting at that time. So I went from 1984 until 1990. Two, so that was like it was like eight years. Yeah, it was about, it was about seven and a half years. Sure, that I didn't have a hit. Do you attribute that to anything other than just kind of the natural ebb and flow of a, a songwriter's career? I think so because I think a lot of people they quit, they get out of it. And yeah. So I was going through a lot of my forties with people just assuming I was a permanent forever and never has been. And my career has been full of dry spells as far as getting the songs recorded and then hot spells. 
And yeah. every time that happens, not as many people return the phone calls. People assume that you're dead musically. Then yeah. you come back, and they start being nice to you again. You know, <laughs> and then you know, at some point, you think, do they not realize what they're doing? You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Find out who your friends are in those moments. And it's really interesting. I mean, so I got a hospital again in my fifties. Yeah, and then you know, and then had really the biggest hit at the time, bigger than he stopped learning today was at the time was Toby Keith. I won't talk about me. It was yeah. a monster hit. Yeah. Well, and and really, I mean, before, and I think your story is particularly interesting, and and maybe not a lot of people know this about you, but I understand that in the late. 1980s, you actually sold off the writer's share of your entire catalog of songs, meaning that you virtually started over and, and kind of built a new catalog from, from scratch. So tell us, I mean, you really kind of more than 20 years into a very successful writing career had this moment of kind of reinvention and starting fresh, didn't you? Yeah, I was bad financial shape that I, I sold the writer's rights of my songs to my then publisher, Buddy Killen. Yeah. And he told me that, you know, he was doing it to help me out and I'd get him back someday. And yeah. Buddy was a good man. He did a lot for me, and I love Buddy Killen, but uh, as far as getting the songs back, I didn't. Hmm. And uh, uh, I checked, uh, it was in 2010, I checked to see how much that catalog had made. Yeah. And I only sold it for it was less than five hundred thousand dollars, and got a good return on his investment, about two and a half, two and a half million dollars. Wow! Goodness! Wow! But that, and that was that was back when songs didn't make nearly as much as they would like in the nineties and the two mm. thousands. Sure. Because um, they have a much higher rate now. Yeah. But in my forties, I had to start from scratch. Wow. Of course, my name still appears on. on he stopped loading the D I V R C and right. Golden Ring and all those songs, but I get no money from them. Mm. Yeah. Amazing. But I worked up a deal with Buddy Killen that if I got any songs from the old catalog recorded, that I would get a certain percentage. Right. And that that was good. That was helpful. I did that with a lot of songs. Yeah. Of course, I have a deal where I'm into part of the, you know, getting part of my publishing. You know, so I'm, I'm able right. to reap benefits from the old songs in, in different ways now. But, sure. But, yeah, I don't recommend anybody to do that. If I had to do it over, I would have... I would have got a little one-room house in North mm-hmm. Nashville and, and gone back and forth on the bus every day, you know, right. before selling my yeah. catalog. Yeah, for sure. But it saved, it saved my life at the time. Right. Well, as part of rebuilding that catalog and starting fresh in 1992, you were back in the top ten with Mark Chestnut's cut of Old Flames Have New Names. Mothers, all my old flames have new names. Where there's a lot of girls in town who tied the knot and settled down at Start a fire with some of my old flames, but they've all got new names. Here we go. Now, was was that an older song that found a new home, or is that something you guys had written around that same time? I was at his house. My close friends were Rafe and his then wife Deborah Allen, and and I said I'd like to write something like I love this Whitey Schaefer song that George Strait had uh, called "All My Exes Live in Texas." Mm-hmm. I said, I wish we could write a thing like that. And Ray said, why don't we write a song about this guy that, you know, got all these girlfriends and went away and came back and they'd all married. They all got new names. I said, like, old flames have new names? He said, yeah. So I went home and I started writing it. And I called Ray on the phone. I said, I want to write this song. So we sat there on the phone and wrote the song over the phone. Wow. That was my comeback song. Wow. It was yeah. Number one in Cashbox, number one in Billboard, and then right. it, I felt like at least you know I, I that I'd found a, a pulse, you know. Sure, mm. and, and and absolutely your hot streak, 
continued in the mid-1990s. Tracy Lawrence uh, took two of your songs to the number one spot, Texas Tornado and Time Marches On. Let's hear a bit of you singing a stripped-down version of Time Marches On. Sisters using rouge and clear complexion so Brothers wearing beads and he smokes a lot of dope Mama's so depressed, barely makes a sound Daddy's got a girlfriend in another town Bob Dylan sings like a rolling stone Time marches on Time marches on Now, that song touches on drug use, depression, infidelity, Alzheimer's disease, uh, death. <laughs> we all those things that we're told not to put in the song. <laughs> yeah, you're sort Everyone. of talking about some of the rules and some of those things, and obviously that was a, a big hit, so it worked. And and you have been able to um, very nimbly write about some heavy adult themes for many years. We recently interviewed Brandy Clark and she made the comment that she believes country music should be adult music. And uh, what do you think of that idea? Country music should be adult music. Used to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm glad there's a really young demographic that's loving country music, but I, sometimes I get the feeling that it's aimed totally towards that demographic, which used to be the demographic for rock and roll and country right. used to be more adult music. It seems to kind of have reversed. I mean, I hear Sam Smith, uh, who I think is maybe the hottest male singer in the world. He's a, a, a sort of an R&B singer, a young white guy from Britain. Yeah. And his song's all about relationships. you got this huge song called I'm Not the Only One, which is a cheating song. That, mm-hmm. used, that used to be what you find in country music. <laughs> right. Taylor Swift has become a pop singer, and her songs are about relationships. Yeah. yeah. Right. Story songs. In the country tradition. <laughs> <laughs> right. Interesting. It's an interesting observation. Well, and, and we noted before that you're really skilled on touching on all the themes, the heavy themes and the light themes. And, and I mentioned a moment ago, you mentioned I Want to Talk About Me, which is one of the more fun songs you've had success with. I mean, that thing was number one for five weeks in 2001. And, of course, we've heard how Toby does it, but we've actually got a clip of your own live version. So I want to hear that for a moment. We talk about your work, how your boss is a jerk. We talk about your church and your head when it hurts. We talk about the troubles you've been having with your brother, about your daddy and your mother and your crazy ex-lover. We talk about your friends and the places that you've been. We talk about your skin and the dimples on your chin. Polish on your toes and the run in your hose. And God knows we're going to talk about your clothes. You know talking about you makes me smile. But every once in a while... Wanna talk about me, wanna talk about I, wanna talk about number one, oh my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you, 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 usually. But occasionally, wanna talk about me. And that song was somewhat trailblazing in that it incorporated some hip-hop elements into country music. And in what ways do non-country influences shape your writing? Quite a bit, because I've always love all kinds of music. Hmm. I mean, I love rock and roll, and I loved R&B, too. I mean, probably my all-time musical hero is Ray Charles, who was a great pop, jazz, R&B singer, who also was groundbreaking in that he had a huge album called Modern Sounds in Country and Western Music. Right. He loved country music, and I think he ought to be in the country music all the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, he certainly did a lot to raise the profile of country music for non-country listeners at that time. He did. Um, and 
you know, I, I want to talk about me from what I understand was actually originally recorded by, by Blake Shelton, though it was not released. Um, and you had a big hand in Blake's career and produced his first few albums. Tell us what the experience was like becoming a producer after having been a songwriter for so many years. Well, a lot of people would tell me, you know, well, you ought to be producing because uh, a lot of the records would, would be kind of like my demos because when I would write a song, I would write an arrangement and on the demo session, I would ask the musicians play this or play that. Yeah. And so uh, a friend of mine who was Blake's publisher at the time, Michael Kosser, called me up and played me a song that he had written with this guy. And I said, well, who's that singing? He said, that's the kid I keep telling you that you ought to be producing. Yeah, I said, wow, I said, he sounds to me like maybe a young Hank Jr. or something. I mm. want to meet him. So we got together, and I liked him, and Blake liked my demo, so we agreed to, to do it, and we did. And I produced, like you say, his first few albums, and mm. uh, Austin, uh, The Baby, Some Beach, Old Red, had a bunch of hits. Yeah, And I just loved doing that. There were aspects of it that I did not like. I mean, the politics of it, uh, the, the, the deal with the label, listening to literally thousands of songs i mean two thousand that's a lot of songs to listen to for for a project and i love blake and working with him i love the producing part i mean they actually get in the studio and they're arranging and blake went around doing this little rap thing and hearing this oklahoma white boy doing this rap thing it was hilarious right and it was dirty it was very dirty and very funny (laughs) and so i I thought i need to write a, a rap song for him and I had a close friend, a female friend, who was very, very loquacious. I mean, she, she go on and on and on and on. And, <laughs> and I wrote that song, sort of inspired by her, and wanted to write a song for Blake. Yeah. And and the label we were on, when Blake's first record came out, the label giant folded, and he had a hit without a label, and Warner Brothers picked it up. So we became a part of the Warner family. Right. But at the at the time, I want to talk about me. We were still a giant, and we were talking about put that out as a single on Blake and uh, they done some research and found out that research I'm saying that with quotes are in research <laughs> they play a little bit of a song for somebody over the phone right and that's the, their reaction and that's research and I think <laughs> most of the time it's valid but there are times that is absolutely incorrect yeah and if there's a certain kind of song it won't work and it didn't work with that song obviously because he said people don't like this song in fact this song would probably wouldn't be good enough to even be on an album. Jeez. Hmm. So yeah. I went and play, I played for James Stroud. He cut it on Toby Keith, and it was a huge hit. And Blake never let the label forget it, and he never quit talking about it. He still, <laughs> Blake's still shaking his head over that. <laughs> so much for research. <laughs> yes, right. Well, you've continued to, to move on to... Other big hits, number one, People Are Crazy for Billy Currington, which um, was about 2009, I believe. Um, And you've obviously been amazingly successful as a songwriter. We talked about the fact you're the only uh, living writer to have number ones in five consecutive decades. And, and obviously we, we focused a lot on that. We've talked about your, your role as a producer and we've mentioned your role as an author, but we haven't really touched on the fact that you've also been a recording artist yourself. Um, you, you've been signed to MGM, Mercury, Electra, Columbia, and RCA. And as that an artist... to show you that back in those days, uh, anybody could get a deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think I observe your 
your artist career and, and I see that you really had the chance to kind of go out on the ledge in ways that you might not have been able to, if you were writing those songs for other artists. And I'm thinking of songs like, uh, everybody's got a grunt grunt place or <laughs> I, I lobster, but never flounder or <laughs> Dolly Parton's hits, <laughs> which was from your album, uh, hard poor pornography, <laughs> just uh, kind of this off the wall stuff. And another song that comes to mind is nag, 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 which you recorded on the 1980 album. Oh, Love Bomb. Nag, nag, nag. All you ever do is nag, nag, nag. Must I listen to I really hear some kind of Randy Newman influence in that record. And, and I'm wondering that it was being an artist, an important way for you to kind of explore the outer boundaries of your creativity that maybe wouldn't have fit into that commercial country box. I, I guess so. And I was such a Randy Newman fan. I mm. mean, I was probably not only influenced by him, I was probably trying to be Randy Newman. Because <laughs> I think he's such a genius. Of course. Uh, so that, yeah, that was, that was a huge influence. Yeah, it was. And, but our recording thing, I think I think it was a little self-indulgent, too. I mean, I, a lot of times I would put my, maybe my point of view in songs and stuff. And, you know, looking back on it, I think, well, who cares? And some <laughs> of those records, that's, my idea of hell would be having to spend an eternity listening to some of the Bobby Braddock records. I think, <laughs> I, I think they were awful. Some of them I think were, some of them I think were okay, but I went through one phase, I went through one phase there for, God only knows why. I mean, I, I was doing the eh, 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 thing like the Bee Gees used to do in Big <laughs> Greenwood, and, and I just suddenly, you know, in my 30s, started singing that way. Why? I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, you know, looking back on your career, I wonder if you can name a song or two that you are really, really proud of that, that you thought maybe should have been a hit, but it just didn't happen for whatever reason. The Nerve. Hmm. A song called The Nerve. It's on George Strait's uh, Carrying Your Love With Me album. Oh, yeah. That's one of which I'm most proud is a song called The Nerve. Is that one that you still actively pitch today? Every once in a while. Yeah. Every once in a while. Brad Paisley, when I first met him when he was a young artist, he said, you wrote my favorite song. And I thought he was going to say he stopped loving the day. And hmm. I said, well, what was that? And he said, uh, The Nerve. Huh. And I said, well, why don't you record it? <laughs> <laughs> right. And I imagine you'd give that song higher than a seven? Yeah. I'd, I'd, the biggest compliment I ever had in my life was when Bill Anderson heard that song and he cried and he, and he said, Oh, I ever heard. Wow. Oh, well. I said that's the best compliment I ever had. Yeah, coming yeah. From, yeah. Coming, from, coming from a guy who's written, uh, he knows his way around a hit song. But it's a, it's a song that was a big disappointment to because it didn't, you know, it was mm. a George Strait album. That's great, you know, yeah. but it wasn't a big hit, you know. So yeah. But then I've had hits that I thought were kind of crappy too, you know. So <laughs> it, it all balances out. We won't ask you to name them. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, you've had number one singles in the five consecutive decades of the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Is there a particular current artist who you would just love to see take one of your songs to the top spot of the charts in this decade? Any artist. <laughs> right. That's a good answer. Good answer. <laughs> because, because that would make an all-time record because nobody's ever done that in any yeah. genre. And I am so blessed and so glad to have what I mean. I've been able to make a career doing what I love to do. And some yeah. people don't like their jobs. And then there are some people who do like their jobs and mm. enjoy. And I'm blessed to have a job that I like. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Bobby. This has been great. Thank yeah. you, Scott and Paul. It's my pleasure. I enjoyed it.